All right, chapter 2, verse 18 in the book of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who's, who has eyes... Like a flame of fire. And whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service. And patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent for her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each one, to each of you, according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, I say, I do not lay on you another, any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even I, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Holy Spirit, we come to you desiring to see Jesus. And we thank you for your ministry that highlights his glory for us now. Jesus, we want to see you. Please, in your name we pray. Amen. You know, in our lives as believers, uh, within, and I have had, I've had a lot of people through the years tell me that as a pastor, I don't know the real world. I don't know the real workforce. I don't know what it's like to really be in corporate settings. To a large extent, yes. I have never, one of my girls asked me a few months ago, Dad, can, can you help me write a resume? Can you help me with this interview that's coming up? I've never written a resume. I have never had a job interview in my entire life. Been a pastor. As a teenager, kind of felt the call to be a pastor. People around me said, hey, you'd be a good pastor. Okay, let's do that. And I pastored in the church I grew up at. So the interview was, you want to do this? Yeah, I like to do this. Okay, cool. That was about it. But what we do understand and what happens in all categories, because we have in our lives 
the desire to live for God, but we have these cravings that draw us away. And they, they compete with us. Back in the 1960s, Francis Schaeffer, uh, he had a concept that he began teaching that, that he saw developing within culture, but more so in the Christian church, because we would take the secular and keep it separate from the sacred. So the secular is the part of our lives that's just, we're in the world, we're trying to be not of the world, it's just stuff happening all the time. And we have the sacred life that we live and our devotion to the Lord and our desire for him and our church attendance and the believers that we have in our lives. We have this component of our lives that's sacred to us, but we have a secular component in the life that we live Monday through Saturday where it just feels different. And he began to see what Christians were doing with separating those things. And he said there were two stories. One was on top of the other and they really didn't coincide. They didn't meet ever. And he said, as a warning to the church, and he was right, be careful, because we're not supposed to separate holy living and unholy. The holy that we are inside is to be able to sh- be shown through from inside, forth from inside to see and impact the world that we're living in. That's the Great Commission. You have new life. Go speak that life. Go live that life in the context that you're in, and you'll begin to see God work and change. In Thyatira, they had this division happening, and they had a lady in the church that was telling them, oh, it's okay to have the division. God understands the division. He understands how hard the secular can be. So he, he, he overlooks. He might, he might wink a little bit, let you slide over here, but just make sure you're doing the, the things over here in the, in the sacred and the holy. Make sure you're still reading your Bible. Make sure you're still going to church. Make sure you're doing those things, and everything's going to be okay. And Jesus says, it's not okay. It's not okay because there's sickness going on that's happening in the inside. The believers in Thyatira, they they were between a rock and a hard place. Two aspects of life, the secular and the sacred, they didn't get along. And they were stuck in between competing allegiances. And we know from the scripture that from Jesus' words himself, we cannot serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thyatira, they were trying to figure out, how do we make a living? How do we make a comfortable living? How do we survive? How do we make a living to survive and still love Jesus? Now, within the teaching that was happening there, and there was a woman, her name was probably not Jezebel, but Jesus uses that to, so they all understand the Old Testament Jezebel. But it, within this teaching, there was a, a compartmentalization that was happening. Hey, we can, we can separate these things, and they don't have to touch. And, and we do that in our lives. And that's why all of us need to hear Jesus' letter to, this, to the Thyatirans, uh, because they, they, were, they were guilty of a tolerance that was unbiblical, unhealthy. We can do that too. And that, that tolerance shows up in our compartmentalizations. We think there's aspects of life that we can keep things from God, from his holiness, and still just be okay. Now, these believers may have thought they had special circumstances that God wouldn't understand. And don't we always use that with God? No, God, I have a special circumstance. So you're going to understand where I'm coming from. You're going to overlook this and really, you're going to let me slide on this one. 
We all reason when we're faced with hard choices. We, we reason ourselves actually out of honoring Jesus above all things. And the, the Thyatiran believers, they accommodated a faulty thinking that led to compromise rather than to thrust themselves on the living God, like we see David doing when he faced Goliath. So here's Jesus' letter to the Thyatirans means this. He calls for our complete devotion. He calls for the complete allegiance of his people. And there's a vision that he gives, and I I just have loved looking at how the particulars of the vision that John saw, Jesus is taking those particulars to fit very carefully into the churches that he's writing. It's it's overwhelming in how he's writing specifically uh, to the Thyatirans. But we have this vision where he is the son of God. It's the only letters, it's the only letter of the seven that uses the term son of God. He's got eyes of fire. It just it, it captures me. I just don't know why. But man, Jesus has eyes of fire to refine us, to purify us. But also that we know he sees everything. There's no compartments that we think we might be hiding from him. It's as if a little child is covering his eyes saying, you can't see me. Because I can't see you. We do that with God, don't we? And he's got feet of bronze. Now that these feet that we looked at in the vision of Jesus, these, this is strength in purity, but it's also strength of purity. And the word bronze that is here, this is interesting. It's the only time this specific word is used in all of Greek literature. So Jesus is being very specific about something. Now, let's think about Thyatira and why this is all uh, coming together. Thyatira, what's remarkable about Thyatira, and I'm saying it a lot, I don't know why, but what's remarkable is that it's unremarkable. It didn't really stand out for anything. It was insignificant. It wasn't one of the leading cities. It wasn't there. What Thyatira was about uh, was it was was a blue-collar city. They had trade guilds galore. Everything was about a trade guild. They, had, they did have a temple to Apollos, who was the son of Zeus, so he's the son of God. He was also considered the God of truth. So when Jesus comes and says, son of God, not Apollos, me. But in these guilds, there was a specific bronze guild that held a secret knowledge to the production of their bronze. And it was the only place you could buy that bronze, that type of bronze. So when Jesus comes in and says, I'm the one that has feet of bronze, I've got the purest bronze, not Thyatira. See what Jesus is doing? He's letting his people know, I'm the king. I win. No matter what comes against me, no matter what stands strong and and acts as if it's going to overcome me, it will not. But within the city, all the workers, now now when we think of guild, think union, that we would correlate it to to our, our understanding of today. All the workers were required to be in a guild in order to make a living. It was part of life. You go get a job, you had to, you had to be part of the union. And allegiance and devotion to the guild was expected. It was demanded as well as expected. And that also meant that they had to participate in the ceremonies and the celebrations, the feasts and the festivals of all the gods of the guilds. 
Now, in these festivals and feasts, it usually began with wine being poured out as an offering to that God and everybody recognizing it and participating in that. And then it would lead to a feast to that God. So there's food sacrificed to that idol that's being consumed. And usually in these feasts and festivals, it led to sexual immorality. Now, this made it hard, right? This is a Christian in a guild was between two rocks of allegiances. You're, either alle- you're, you're devoted to the guild or you are devoted to Jesus. And to stand out in the guild would be to jeopardize one's own work and livelihood. And to not participate in the feasts and the festivals would be comparable to crossing a picket line as a scab. No, I'm not going to do that. What do you mean you're not going to do that? Distrust, dis- disloyal. You're, you're not loyal to us. So we feel that a Christian couldn't just sit by. Or what Jezebel's saying is, I think, I think you can make these things work. Now Jesus has some amazing encouragement for this church. The things they're doing well. He knows their works. Look, love. Look, they, they love better than the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church had the truth. The Thyatirans had the love, but they both needed to show both aspects. Now, he knows their love. He knows their faith. He knows their service. He knows their patient endurance. And you know what he says about them? They're getting better with time. Jesus sees them doing better. I think they've got some serious issues going on, right? But can we take a moment to allow the Spirit to tell us You're not who you once were. You're all right. You're doing better. Because we're more aware of, no, I'm not. I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this. I stink in this category. I'm not making it over here. But allow the Spirit himself to say, let Jesus tell you. You've grown. And the faith that you have today in me, it's more faith than it ever has been. That's worth celebrating, right? When Jesus moves us from faith to faith in our journey with him, he's delighted with that. I think we have to pause and just allow the Lord to let us know of his delight in our growth. Are we growing as fast as we'd like? No. Still got the rough edges? Yeah. But Jesus delights in you. He delights in us as his people. And as we love him, They should get better. Even if it's incrementally, it'll get better. It's getting better. And their works are better as they've lived for the Lord. But he's got some exhortation for them. He has a a rebuke. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, that woman that he says it looks like there is a real person in the church. But he's using the image of the wicked queen Jezebel from the Old Testament to convey the sober reality of what this woman is doing to the church and in the church. Let's remember Jezebel. We learn of her in 1 Kings as the wife of the king of Israel, Ahab. She married Ahab out of a political alliance and never had Israel's best interest in mind. She was always looking for her own desire to be achieved. So she wanted what she wanted and she got what she wanted. She persuaded Ahab to build a temple to Baal in Samaria. She, got, she had prophets of Baal at her disposal to do her bidding. These are the ones that Elijah confronted on Mount Carmel. 
Jezebel was ruthlessly self-centered, acting out of her own self-preservation. And this is what the believers in the church in Thyatira were tolerating in their midst. They were tolerating a self-centeredness, acting out of a self-preservation. And they were accommodating a person who didn't have God's best interest in mind and didn't have people's best interest in mind. The Jezebel in the church was self-appointed. She called herself a prophetess. And she taught in a way that said participation with idolatry was not going to impair or harm love for God. She divided the secular for the sacred to ease people's consciences so they can just go about their life. And this is dangerous footing. It's shifting and it's dangerous for us because we we become convinced that when we participate in compromising activity that it doesn't really have the deepest effect on our souls that it really does. But it has. We looked at Pergamum. It has deep effect on our souls. The believers tolerated her because her teaching made living for Christ and working in an idol factory easy or easier. Maybe they feared coming out against her in the church because of the same fear they had about standing up to the guild to say, I'm not going to participate in that. Most people, uh, we, don't want, we don't want to make waves we want to go with the current so we're left alone, right? That's how we want to live. Just, 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 I don't want to make waves. I don't want to stir something up. Now, we know people that love to stir something up, and we want to avoid them, right? I'm not going to get around you because you love to stir it up. We just want to be left alone. But sometimes leaving things alone means that it's being torn down. And our, our spiritual lives are torn down from the inside when we leave things alone. Jesus doesn't leave them alone. He, he sees them with his eyes of fire and he wants to purify them. See, on the one hand, most of us don't experience the drastic position the Thyatirans uh, were in, the believers that they lived in. But, you know, we don't know most of us, I think. There are circumstances, though. Most of us know that we won't get fired for something if we don't show up somewhere. They had it very differently. But... Many of you know the corporate policies, and now they're sneaking into government policies that make it difficult to speak of your relationship with Christ. You're not allowed to do that. You can get written up. HR will be calling because you said you love Jesus. It's different, right? It feels different. Now, that's on one hand. We, we want to, to promote Christ, but we feel the tension of how to do that. Now, on the other hand, the expectations of work life make compromise normal. Compromise is just a regular part of the day. And so we don't even give it a second thought because it's just how business is done. Lying becomes normal. Half-truths are what they are. Half-truths are expected in order to get the bid, to get the job, to get the win. And to speak up when somebody else is doing it may carry too great a cost. Yeah, you know, it's just the way things are. It just is what it is. We just got to go with it. God understands. That's how it sneaks into our lives. Now, when we have a false authority, remember Jezebel is calling herself a prophet, false authority, combined with false doctrine, and I think compartmentalization in our lives can very easily lead 
it is a false doctrine, but it leads to false doctrine because we begin to think that God interacts with us in a special way that's not in his word and it's not revealed in, in what Jesus is and the spirit is to us. So you put false authority with false doctrine, you will get unholy living. You will. Because what we think in our minds, it happens. That's why uh, Romans 12 is coming to mind when we have to re- be renewed in our minds. We, in Philippians uh, 4, we have to think about the purity of Christ in order to be renewed. And now, we, we, when there's unholy living, that's when the rationalizations come in. Thinking that if we can keep things secret or just apart enough that they, it really won't affect anything. But, uh, church, we tolerate Jezebel when we tolerate the unholy rationalizations in our minds. When we have figured out how something can work together when God says, that's just not going to work. It's not going to work. And we've got Jezebel in our ears to bring rationalizations that will give us more control of our lives, that will provide us more significance that we desire, and just simply to make life easier. Can I just go with the current and not have it hard? We tolerate Jezebel to varying degrees. Now, God's grace is put on huge display in three big categories. As Jesus says, here's how I'm going to respond to this woman. The first thing is in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. So God's grace is on display with his patience. He's patient with this. This woman is acting out of self-centeredness and self-preservation. And yet the king of glory says, I'm still going to give her time to repent. Oh, praise God. He's like that with us. And in Romans 2, 4, his kindness leads us to repentance. Jesus gave Jezebel time to repent and he gives us all time to repent. But if we do not repent, he will come and bring judgment. And God's God's grace is on display with judgment because he's trying to separate the people who are committing this compromise and it's a spiritual adultery with Jezebel. He wants to give them time too. So this is what he says, verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. What Jesus is saying is, listen, I still want them to repent but I might need to make life a little harder to get their attention. And it might be through sickness. It might be through just hard life, tribulation, relational breakdown, strife, emptiness, loneliness, financial ruin. God will use it all to let us know that's not the most important thing we're to be after. Now, it doesn't mean every time we're sick, Please understand this. It doesn't mean every time you get sick that, that you're sinning and God needs to get your attention. Right? Can we, can we understand that? But sometimes it could very well mean that. Something lingering, something that's not going away. That's when we have to clue in, God, what, what are you doing? This isn't just, Mucinex didn't work this time. What's going on? What's happening? I want to be on your page, God. I want to find out what you're doing. I want to know how you're going after my heart. So feel and see the the tenderness, the grace of God within his harsh reality. Hey, I'm coming to you. 
Remember he told uh, the Corinthian church had a bad problem because it was a way to show uh, superiority in the church. When they would gather together, usually it was in the evenings uh, after church and the, uh, after work, they would gather as the church and they'd have communion together. They'd have a meal together. Uh, the rich people got off early around noon o'clock, so they were there early and they're celebrating. They're having a great time, but all the, the day wage people got there late. And so they just said, well, just go ahead and eat. Well, they ate all the food. So whenever the, whenever the poor people showed up that, who were in the church, they got nothing to eat. And Paul said, listen, that's why some of you are sick, because you're not paying attention to this. The Apostle Paul let him know, God's letting you get sick to get your attention. So you repent, and you serve, and you love one another. Doesn't mean every time we're sick, something's happening. I mean, pollen is everywhere. It's not God's judgment, <laughs> even though we feel like it is, Right? Can't breathe. We have like three inches of pollen on our cars. It's not God's judgment. Maybe it is. No, it's not. So we see his grace on display with patience. We see his grace on display with judgment. And we see his grace on display with preservation. Oh, let me add the children one. I will strike her children dead. I think what Jesus is saying is the unbelievers who are with Jezebel, they're... Their judgment is coming with an eternal judgment. But God wants them all to repent. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Somewhere in Ezekiel, Ezekiel says that. He does not take pleasure in that. But God's grace is on with preservation. The second uh, part of verse 23, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each uh, each of you according to your works. Jesus is protecting his church. Jesus is preserving his church. What we think we're doing out of self-preservation, Jesus says, no, that's not going to be the greatest good. And, and, and we do that, right? We make decisions and we plan things out of self-preservation. And Jesus always reminds us, remember, I hold the seven stars. I hold your future. Trust me. He preserves us. He, he does things out of his own self-preservation because that's the best preservation. Not our own weird attempts to just try to make our lives comfortable. And he uses the experience of believers to sharpen the resolve of all believers. When we see somebody else going through something, that, that has an effect on us, right? Like, wow, you're experiencing that? I want to love Jesus more because of your response. I want to love Jesus more because of what you're... And, and even the love and the, sincere, the care that we give one another makes our faith more sincere, more pure. Jeremiah 17.10. I was going to say Jesus quoted Jeremiah, but Jesus is actually quoting himself in Jeremiah 17.10. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds... He sees with his eyes of fire. He sees everything. But look, he's not. If we have a relationship with him, with the Holy Spirit living inside of us because we repented of our sins and have trusted him for salvation, listen, church, he's not looking at us with eyes of fire of judgment. That's eyes of fire of purity. So we partake in his divine nature more and more and more and more. And then Jesus gives the church the promise Thing. Here's where you need to look. Verse 24, he says, The rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned 
what some call the deep things of Satan. He's commending, again, there's some of you who have discerned and you've avoided the deep things of Satan because you've recognized a demonic activity going about in that. Demonic origins of this unholy accommodation in the lives of the, of the people in the church that you're caring about. He says, all right, you're doing good. But he actually tells these believers, hey, you need to speak up. You need to speak up for the truth. In the love that you operate with, you need to speak up for the truth. You can't tolerate this anymore. You know, given our vast accessibility to preaching and teaching uh, with the internet, I mean, I, I, wonder what, I wonder if the Apostle Paul and, and the Apostles, if, if the Lord is letting them see what's happening with information and how fast things can get around the world, but they would think, man, if we had that, the whole world would have been saved. What are y'all doing? We don't know. But we have access, don't we? We need to be discerning and vigilant so we are not drawn in by nice-sounding arguments that just make us feel better about ourselves and don't make us look at Jesus in full surrender. Because that's the compartmentalization. That, that's the rationalization. Hey, make sure that you know God is more about you than you being like Jesus. No, he's more about us being like Jesus than he is. It's part, I think it's just so much of, I think, teaching now wants to value us. And culture is doing that. Culture is saying, you value you because you are you and that's valuable. We say, yes, that is, because we're image bearers of God. But when we take our value and we put it above Christ's value, it's off dangerous footing. We're going we're gonna to be slipping and we're going to give our, because that's a false authority. It gives into false concepts about how God's supposed to interact with us. And actually leads to unholy living, not the holy living that we were talking, uh, that we, we want. And God has set before us in works of righteousness to honor Jesus. So be discerning and be vigilant. These believers needed to speak up for the truth in love, in Jesus' love. That he comes to them, he says, I'm not giving you another burden. I love that. I love that. Jesus says, I'm not giving you something else to do. Just do what I've called you to do. Obey. Obey my commandments. That's what Jesus says. And when we find that, they're not burdensome. Because we have the Spirit empowering us to walk them out. But he says this, hold fast. Hold fast to the gospel which gives light, gives the discernment that we walk in and with in life. And he, he says, hold fast to the gospel of light. Hold fast to the gospel of life. That we would be led by Christ, but also our trust in Christ would be the light and life that we exist in. And people in a lost and hurting world see that in us and they ask what we have. We're, we are to look differently. We are to be a light. But we have to make sure we're, we're understanding that light and, it's, and that fire is getting bigger and bigger and bigger in us. It's like Think of Jesus looking at it with his eyes of fire and it takes the fire that's in us and just grows. That's a cool picture. I like that. I didn't think about that until right now. I, I, I want you to look at me like that so you grow in me and you shine forth. Hold fast, and he says also to the one who conquers. Remember, we're conquering by obeying the word. He says he gives us authority over nations. This is a, almost a direct quote from Psalm 2, verses nine, uh, 7 through 9. I would tell of, a, of the decree 
The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, what we see in this Jesus psalm, God tells Jesus, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Ask of me and I'll give you spiritual life in the people that you want and you collect to yourself. That's us. So Jesus said, I want him and I want her and I want you and I want you and I want you and I want you. And he gathers us all together. So when we have that authority, now I don't know what that looks like. That's some in the future, in eternity, we get to rule nations. I have no idea what that means. We'll do it in purity. We're not going to do it corruptly because we'll be free from sin. But we will, we will rule over nations. But what Jesus is saying is, you are going to rule with what I have collected you in. I have brought you to myself in my presence. And the love and the truth and the glory that you experience in me, that's what you're going to rule with. And that weird image of with a rod of iron dash in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, what kings used to do was take a big earthen vessel and they would write all the names of their enemies on it. And with their scepter, when they ruled over that, they took their scepter and they would crush that just to symbolize we have victory over our enemies. I can't wait to have victory over all sin. Amen? It's like I'm so tired of my sin. I'm just tired of it. It wears me out. I can't wait to just crush that earth and just Jeff's sin. Finally. And have that rejoicing and that moment, that freedom. I'm so glad the Lord allows us to walk in that freedom in our lives. But oh, for the day when it's just settled. It's just done. But catch what Jesus says. We will crush the enemy of our soul with his authority. It's a promise. And then he says, I will give them the morning star. It's a reference to himself. He's the morning star. He's the one that shines the brightest, and he's the one that's up first in the morning. He is the morning star. And he says, if you conquer by obeying my word, I give you me. I give you me. Now, what struck me earlier this week as I read through the passage is when Jesus says, hold fast what you have until I come. Uh, what, I think we need to pray for one another to hold fast. Because sometimes we feel like our grip is slipping. And in that moment, we need to be reminded that his grip on me is stronger than my grip on him. So let's stand up together. And this is where we, we want to be the body of Christ, that we, we love one another and we support one another in this moment. So I'm asking you to do a brave thing. You're saying, I need prayer to help me hold fast to what the Lord is doing. Just slip a hand up. We're going to gather around each other. So see the hands. Every head up, every eye open so we can see the hands. 
Can we gather around each other and pray? Let's pray. Faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me saves are his delight Christ will hold me fast precious in his holy sight he will hold me fast he'll not let my soul be lost his promises shall last bought by him at such a Savior love. 
ask that we would have a ready awareness, just an ongoing real-time awareness of your hold on us. Lord, as we look out at the landscape of our lives, our relationships, our work, whatever it may be, Our temptation is to look at those things and maybe look for you to show up in unique ways in those situations that provide us comfort and we overlook the salvation that you've won for us. That is all the comfort we need. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for holding us fast. We cling to you. We do. We cling to you, God. But I'm just so thankful that you're clinging to us even in those moments where we, we want to let go. And we want to say, forget this. Nope. You're preserving us because it's your good and it's your love toward us. So, Father, I pray that we, we really would feel us being held and gripped by your love to keep us close to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for... Jesus, your exaltation. I, I do trust you have answered our prayer, Holy Spirit, to see Jesus. That's what we need. Son of God with eyes of fire and feet of burnished bronze. How strong, how strong for us. We thank you, Lord. Right, a little different uh, send-off commission today. Just the Lord laid Lamentations 3 on my heart. Just listen for this. Just another reminder of his fast hold on us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We have that quietness in our spirit, right? We have that quietness we're feeling. Lord, your mercies are new. They never cease. And your steadfast love is always with me. Amen. Amen. God bless you.